0: PodSave America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change, with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave.
1: Is that your cat?
2: Yes, I shouldn't have woken him up. <laughs> I just Sorry, threw- that's, kind of, that's... No, fine. no, 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 I'm just joking. Well, he went. would have done it anyway. I just threw him some toys.
1: Welcome back to the third... And sadly, final episode of That's a Ticket. I'm Dan Pfeiffer.
2: And I'm Alyssa Mastromonico. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what factors candidates consider once they have vetted potential options, how they announce their decision, and who we think Biden might pick. Along the way, we're going to talk about Dan Quayle's gaffes, so much material there, and some of the most memorable moments in vice presidential debate history, as well as some more of my campaign trail antics.
1: Later in the pod, I'm going to talk to senior writer at 538, Perry Bacon, Jr., about what the polling tells us and doesn't tell us about the politics of Biden's choice. Alyssa, how you
2: doing? I mean, buddy, first, can we talk about last episode? Sure. And how um, last week, you know, we talked about Sarah Palin, and we talked about Geraldine Ferraro, and we really talked about, like, Ferraro being picked as the first, you know, Democratic woman on a Democratic ticket. And, buddy, her daughter, Geraldine Ferraro's daughter, Donna Zaccaro, tweeted at us and sent us messages about how we did right by her mom and telling the story. And I just don't know if we should just fold it up and call it a day now because I'm not sure we can do better than that.
1: (laughs) Well, we have a lot of people who have joined us in this Zoom room to help us facilitate this episode. So I think out of respect for them, we should probably do it.
2: I guess so. But I can just tell you, baby feminist Alyssa was really cavelling.
1: (laughs) Every process is different. But I think every modern nominee considers the same set of factors in the running mate choice. Now, they may weigh each of those factors differently based on the state of their campaign, their own experiences, what the backdrop in which the campaign is happening, but they still look at those factors. And first and foremost, I think among all those factors, is a threshold question of readiness for the job. And Joe Biden has already indicated that this is driving his decision. He's been saying some version of this for the past couple months. Let's take a listen. But all kidding aside, I have to pick somebody
3: who in fact reassures people that if tomorrow lightning strikes and I die, I get, and I've released all my medical records and I'm in, well, I don't want to jinx myself. As my mother said, knock on wood, I'm in great shape. But my point is, I've got to pick somebody who everybody looks at and meets two criteria. One, that they are younger than I am. No, I'm not being facetious. And number two, that they are ready on day one to be president of the United States of America.
1: Alyssa, given Joe Biden's age and the fact that this campaign is happening in the middle of a pandemic, do you think the readiness factor is even more important this time?
2: Uh, when sworn in, knock wood, as Joe Biden would say, he'll be 78, which is not young, and he follows, Probably one of the most, no, I I feel confident saying the most unfit president of all time. So I think that this has to be. Do you mean mentally or or physically? Both. I mean, I'm not sure which on a scale of one to 10, which he, he might be a 10 on both scales. I don't even know. He does not seem fit to me in any way. So I think that for Biden, readiness has to be numero uno. Like I don't think he has the luxury of making a real outside the box pick here. I think he needs someone who when they anna- he announces this woman, I don't even say person, I can say woman, when he announces this woman everyone's like I fucking get it. Good for you.
1: Readiness is an interesting question in a world in which we are coming on the heels of a two presidents Uh, with very non-traditional resumes. Barack Obama, very very successful. Donald Trump, less so, I'd say. There's a question of readiness in terms of their resume and readiness in terms of their ability to convince the American people who are going to be choosing this ticket of their readiness, right? You know, the most obvious example of a VP candidate who failed the readiness test was Sarah Palin. We've talked a lot about her on the pod, and you probably remember Tina Fey's impression of her. But it wasn't just liberals and the writers at SNL thought she was unprepared. In an October 2008 poll, shortly before the vice presidential debate, a Washington Post ABC News poll found that 60% of voters thought that Palin did not have the experience needed to be president, including 30% of Republicans. Now, what I think is really notable about that is her resume was not significantly on paper worse than Obama's. Like The public here is reflecting what they saw of her between when she was announced in August and when this poll was taken in October. Now, someone who our younger listeners may not remember as well is Dan Quayle, who was viewed as spectacularly dumb and unprepared for the job of president when he ran with George H. W. Bush in 1988 and 1992. His most famous gaffe today is probably misspelling potato on camera in a classroom full of elementary school students in 1992, but this was just one of his many fuck ups. Here's Dan Quayle talking about World War
3: II. Millions of innocent people lost their lives because of the bigotry and Hitlerism that permeated Germany and other parts of the world. It was an obscene period in our nation's history. No, not our nation's, but in World War II. I mean, we, we all lived in this century. I, did. I didn't live in this century, but in this century's history. We did not have, matter of fact, we fought Hitlerism, which was a totalitarian form of government.
1: Alyssa, I consider you a student of history. Do you remember Hitlerism?
2: So, buddy, I was just going to say that from now on, whenever I'm feeling like I can't find my words on a podcast, I'm just going to listen to that and get my self-esteem back because he was running <laughs> to be vice president. Uh, I, I don't remember Hitlerism. Neither does my Oma, who lived in Germany and fled people called Nazis. <laughs>
1: I mean, Boyle is really interesting, and it speaks to how your performance on the campaign trail dictates perceptions of readiness, right? He had served, you know, about four times as long in the United States Senate as Barack Obama did when Barack Obama ran. But because under the klieg lights of a presidential campaign, he misspelled the word potato in front of a group of elementary school children, he had this perception that he was not ready. Now, Bush and Quail ultimately won the 88 election, Right. So does that raise the question about whether, at least in terms of the context of the politics of the campaign, we worry too much about the readiness question?
2: I don't think we worry too much about it. I mean, one thing that I just can't (laughs) forget, one thing that I did not know until getting ready for today, I knew about the potato comment and that he couldn't spell it. I didn't know that it happened at a spelling bee, (laughs) which I just thought was very, very incredibly just dramatic um, and makes it so much worse but no I think that readiness when you look at quail and when you look at Palin there's something about on paper and I think this is what goes to the point that we've been talking about about how important the vetting process is is that on paper people can look much more prepared for higher office than they are but what the two of them lacked profoundly was any sort of worldview right like or like fundamental curiosity and how things worked or people lived, or I don't know, but I I think that people don't necessarily vote for the vice president, but I think a vice presidential pick can scare the shit out of them.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right, which is, Barack Obama always refers to his selection of Joe Biden as the most important decision he made before becoming president, and because it says so much about their judgment, their vision of how they're going to run their government, what they value. And when it looks like you're taking a shortcut, voters notice, right? So Palin's a great example, which is there was an interview where Mark Salter, who was McCain's very super longtime advisor, chief of staff in the Senate for many years, helped explain the Palin decision. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing Mark here, but that Obama personified change and McCain did not. So they needed to add something to the ticket that demonstrated change. And Sarah Palin certainly would do that. Now- change for change's sake is not good necessarily, right? Um, And maybe they should have thought that through. But it said so much about McCain's judgment, which was already under question because of his incredible unyielding, despite years of evidence for the Iraq war, that he would choose someone who would potentially help him on the campaign now at the expense of what kind of government he would have if he won. And voters noticed Mm -hmm. that. And it fit within a narrative of McCain, which was that he had bad judgment and erratic decision-making process. When you say it's a vetting issue, right? I think what you're really saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're talking about the judgment that Biden will eventually make and Biden's advisors will make about how they will perform once they are on Broadway on the ticket, right? Like right. anyone can look at the resume. And I think on every person who, you know, if you look at the people on Biden's shortlist, you have, you know, incredibly successful senators, senators who have served in statewide office. You have people who have run cities. You have people who have been, you know, national security advisors to investors, to the UN, and the president, like people with a wide range of different experiences, all of which have more experience than Donald Trump. But the question isn't really, will people look at the resume? It's will they look at the candidate when they are on stage and say, this person is ready. The choice of this person by Joe Biden tells me that Joe Biden is someone whose judgment I will trust in a crisis. Is that right?
2: Yeah. And also like when you think about it, A very low bar hurdle could be, how would this person do in an interview with Katie Couric? Because neither Dan Quayle or Sarah Palin were ready for primetime. You know, like George Bush was so, I mean, his credentials were extraordinary. And when he picked Quayle, it was almost seen by some people in the Republican Party and certainly commentators and especially people in the United Kingdom, they had a lot to say about this, that it was such a cavalier choice that he viewed himself in such a way that he picked this person who would just seem like young and virile.
1: It is important, I think, in the Quayle and Pale. like these are two very different elections happening at two very different times. McCain was a— Republican senator following a Republican president with an approval rating under thirty mm-hmm. percent. You know, I always joke that George W. Bush was so unpopular in the two thousand eight election that his speech at the Republican convention was canceled because of a hurricane oh, yeah. in Florida, mm-hmm. even though the convention was in Minnesota, and then they never rescheduled it. So it's like, like that's all backwards. And Bush was following Reagan, who was still you know you know quite popular, had you know after two terms. But there's also the factor that. Men with thin resumes get the benefit of the doubt in a way that women do not, right? And so that like that level of misogyny is going to obviously underlie the reception to Biden's pick, right? Which obviously will be a woman. You know, there are two other elements of the quail example that I think are relevant to this election, which is, as you point out, George H. W. Bush was one of the most experienced people to ever run for president. He had been vice president for two terms. He had been a senator. He had been the CIA director. He'd served in a number of positions all throughout government. He had a very expansive resume. So there were no questions about his readiness. And he was obviously, well, not a spring chicken. He was significantly younger than Biden. But there were two points during that campaign where Bush fell ill, not seriously ill, but ill enough to be off the campaign trail, which raised the specter of a quail presidency. Like George H.W. Bush, Biden has an impeccable set of quote unquote traditional experiences preparing prepare him for the job. I mean, he worked in that building for eight years, not very long ago. And uh, even though it feels like a thousand years ago, but also this is happening in the middle of a pandemic. And so the, the specter of illness, you know, will hang over this choice. Now, I think of readiness as a gating issue, right? The mm-hmm. campaign just says, does this person meet a threshold on paper And is it in our gut that they have what it takes to demonstrate that readiness to the American people on the campaign trail, in interviews, on a debate stage? Can they answer a question about newspapers? All, you know, the basic things. And uh, I think the second factor people think about is governing, right? Mm -hmm. When I think of governing, this is sort of what is the governing relationship going to look like? This is projecting forward to if and when I win, how is this relationship going to work? There are two different elements of that. One is, what is their vision for the role the vice president plays? And then which of your on your shortlist fits within that role? And the second one is personal relationship, right? Like, do you feel like you can trust this person? But, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that Biden wants to replicate the partnership in relationship that he had with Barack Obama. You know, what was your recollection of that model? And, and how do you think it applies here?
2: So theirs was a real partnership, but a hierarchical partnership because the president is the president. And once the president makes a decision, you need someone who is going to help inform that decision and be a partner in the decision. But once he makes the decision, that's that. And so from all of Biden's years in the Senate, like I think he fundamentally understood hierarchical relationships. And POTUS really wanted someone who was going to be a partner. So if you are someone who's on Biden's shortlist and you're trying to think about the kind of relationship he might want, I think it would be just like a real partnership.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the role that lunch plays and how that relationship works?
2: So uh, Joe Biden very much thought it would be good for the president and and uh, Biden to have lunch once a week together. And when you think about it, no matter who you are, if you don't pick your best friend, I mean, obviously, if I ran for president, you would be my vice president. And, you know, but we have known each other for so many years, I fundamentally understand our relationship and your decision making style. And so the idea Between the two of them having lunch was, one, building that relationship, coming to understand each other, and also being able to, I think, especially for Biden, give his sort of unvarnished feedback, not in front of a room full of cabinet secretaries.
1: Here's my very important question about this lunch, Mm. and I don't know if you know the answer, which is Barack Obama, Barack Seven Almonds Obama, (laughs) uh, is a very, very healthy, boring, you know, Like he eats salmon like for lunch like six days a week. Yeah. Do you do you think he made Biden eat salmon for lunch six days a week, or did Biden get to order off order off the menu? So
2: I think Biden got to order off the menu <laughs> because unless it was like a big or er, group lunch, usually because I do think POTUS was somewhat aware of his eating intricacies <laughs> that uh, I believe I'm going to say that Biden ordered off the menu. Though, because he was such a good partner, he may have always just said, I'll have what the president's having.
1: Biden has been you know, described as, I think, accurately as the most influential and consequential vice president in American history. And that is unusual, right? The vice presidency traditionally has been a ceremonial position in some cases. You know, John Nance Gardner, who was one of FDR's vice presidents, once described the Vice presidency as worth a warm bucket of piss, which I always thought that that quote was warm bucket of spit. It was. It was. But I've learned through the very excellent research skills of our producer Jordan Waller that the, the press, he actually, Garner actually said piss, but the press cleaned it up to spit to make life easier for Garner and because I don't think he probably couldn't get piss in the newspaper back then. <laughs> um, a literal example of fake news. One thing that was interesting about the Biden-Obama negotiations we've since learned is that Biden wanted to be in charge of some things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he did a lot of the ceremonial stuff that vice presidents do. They're sort of famous for being sent to funerals for second- and third-tier world leaders. They often are, you know, if the president can't do something, they'll send the vice president. And so he did all those things, obviously, and did it gladly. And he spent a lot of time uh, campaigning and doing other things uh, when he wasn't in office. But – He was tasked with very specific projects that he oversaw, right? He came in and because of his experience in the Senate, he really handled passing a lot of our legislative agenda through the Senate and handled negotiations with Republicans. He was in charge of Iraq policy, right? He was spearheading that as we were figuring out how we're going to wind down the effort in Iraq. He was in charge of the Recovery Act, right? The stimulus bill to help get us out of that. And my assumption is, is that Biden is looking for someone who can do that, right? Who we can say, and he says in some of these quotes, the presidency is too big for one person. So you need someone who can take on real things and drive them. And so the question is you think about, well, which of these candidates will he pick depends on which they, you know, which we don't have the answer to is which things does he want to be able to hand off to someone Mm -hmm. else, right? Like, much like Obama handed the economic recovery off to Biden, if Biden wanted to do that, then, like, you see Elizabeth Warren as someone who's worked in economic policy. If if he wants to hand off foreign policy with Susan Rice, you know, it could be any range of issues, including the economy with Kamala Harris. You sort of go on down the line. But, like, the third factor that is looked at is politics. Now, I think based on that quote we heard from Biden earlier, that is the thing I think he's going to consider least, right? And the more he goes up in the polls, I think politics as a factor may diminish more. But the political factor, you know, this is a campaign and you can't do any of these other things, right? You can't have lunch with this person every week in the Oval Office. You can't, um, you know, just assign them projects until you win. So winning remains part of the conversation. And there are a number of ways in which the politics of this are considered, right? You know, will a VP nominee help them carry a state, the VP's home state, will the VP nominee help the ticket gain support from specific constituencies? You know, How will they handle the debate? So let's start with the first one, right? In the traditional way you think about this, and it's talked about, they say, Biden should pick this person because they will help deliver this state, which will get you closer to 70. Alyssa, is there any evidence that supporting the idea that a VP selection helps with winning their home state? And, and this was part of the calculus for John Kerry. Uh, when he picked John Edwards and you are working on that process. Is that correct?
2: It was. And when I was thinking about this, I always like to think, like, what's my first reaction to a question when I ask myself the question? And my my response to myself was, meh, when I asked if states matter. John Kerry, like most of his finalists uh, in 2004 were from battleground or soon to be battleground states. There was a lot of talk about whether John Kerry back in 2004, the idea of writing off the South, I'm putting that in quotes, was still a thing. And so the appeal of John Edwards was one that by picking a Southerner Uh, you know, from North Carolina who had working class appeal. It wouldn't seem as though he was going to write off the South. And also there was this allure that perhaps, you know, John Edwards could help Kerry win North Carolina. John Kerry lost North Carolina by 15 points. (laughs) So I don't think that there's real, if you go through history, I don't think there's any example of there really being someone who was picked and put the candidate over the top in a state where they already weren't within a couple points or any points at all?
1: I mean, this is such a hard thing to judge because it's such a small sample size, right? We've had so few presidential elections and only some subset of those presidential elections involve a vice presidential candidate from a swing state that could possibly move. And then how do you decouple that from the other larger factors, like, for example, in 2008, Barack Obama won Wisconsin by around 15 points. Mm-hmm. In 2012, Romney put your friend and mine, mm-hmm. Wisconsinite Paul Ryan, on the ticket. And although he still lost Wisconsin, he lost it by about half the margin that Obama won the state by in 2008. You might look at that and say, well, Paul Ryan is, must be super popular in Wisconsin, and therefore he helped move the state. But then in 2016 Donald Trump won the state and Paul Ryan was nowhere to be seen. And so Paul Ryan probably was had almost no effect on that and right. it was more and what was going on there was more about the partisan shift of that state over time. Now, putting aside states because if you look at the people Biden is considering, right? You have Tammy Baldwin who is from a swing state, mm-hmm. right? You have Stacey Abrams and Keisha Lance Bottoms, who are from Georgia, which is a potential swing state. Um, Stacey Abrams, obviously, even though she did not become governor, you know, has got more votes in Georgia than any Democrat in history, including Barack Obama, in her 2018 gubernatorial race, which was stolen from her by Brian Kemp. Um, Fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But everyone, you know, Elizabeth Warren is not, Biden's going to be fine in Massachusetts. You know, Val Demings, you know, maybe that's impactful in Florida, you know, but not super well known with, you know, statewide, let alone nationally. But, you know, there is a question about whether this person could help performance with a certain group. Do you think that's something Biden will consider and particularly against the backdrop of the conversation we're having in this country over the last couple of months about structural racism?
2: I think it definitely plays into the conversations that they're having within the Biden team and then with candidates as they talk to them. But even still, if you look back to the beginning, I mean, and by the beginning, I mean the 1980s, Geraldine Ferraro, first woman on the Democratic ticket. We lost women by a lot. Hillary Clinton put Spanish-speaking Tim Kaine on the ticket. She did less well with Latinos than Barack Obama did. So I think that you have to put everything in its place. I do think that all of the things that are happening in the world right now are very relevant to the conversations they're having. But at the end of the day, the world has to believe the ticket, right? When they come out on stage or wherever the fuck they are, people have to be like, I get it, Because their chemistry like makes sense and you can see it. And I think that that gives people confidence that they're going to be a team. And so it's like, if you go back, you know, all of Romney's advisors told him to pick Portman because there was actually a chance of gaining the two or three points in Ohio with Portman to have, you know, won him the state. And he was like, you know what, though, if I have lunch with someone, I want it to be Paul Ryan. And... I do think though that he didn't Who beat us, but it was ev- more okay, it was that, believable.
1: That, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is right there disqualifying. What? If you if you believe that you want to have lunch with Paul Ryan,
2: oh my God, I thought then, you meant I was disqualified. You, no. Oh no. no you can stay.
1: But if, <laughs> I got so But upset. if Rick Romney scanned the waterfront and he picked his weekly lunch partner to be Paul Ryan, then I am sorry, you are not, you are Less fit for the office of president. Let me tell Donald you another
2: thing. That is my. If you view. pick a running mate with ill fitting suits, you reap what you sow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or you pick a running mate if you are already losing because you were seen as someone who was not sufficiently empathetic to middle and working class Americans, and you pick a person who is most famous for naming a plan to privatize Medicare after themselves, then you, you reap what you sow. I am sorry. I don't mean to turn this into a Paul Ryan rant pod. All true. All true. And I think think you get to what is a very important part of the politics of this, which is you can be overly tactical about it by saying, you know, this person can help us with this state and that it doesn't manifest itself. This person can help us with this group of voters. And it doesn't, as it did not for Mondale and Ferraro or McCain and Palin. You know, it has mattered some. I think there's some evidence that Trump's selection of Mike Pence- might have helped serve as a validation for evangelical voters who might have been uh confused at the imperative to support a thrice married pussy uh, grabber uncouth person. <laughs> yes.
2: I said it you didn't.
1: Yes. Yeah, yes. I can't wait till we debate whether that can be the title or not. Um <laughs> and so, but there is narrative, right? Like, and this is part of where the politics is, does it help with the narrative? Like and what's the narrative you want to communicate? So let's look at a couple of previous examples, right? In the case of Barack Obama, obviously, he was someone with less traditional experience. He was going to be taking over at a time in which America was in two wars and was barreling towards a financial crisis. Joe Biden, certainly compared to the other two people on the shortlist, Evan Bay and Tim Kaine, represented the most standard governmental experience, right? Particularly in the area of foreign policy. In the case of Al Gore, you know, the Al Gore one is really interesting because he picked Joe Lieberman, which seems insane now that Joe Lieberman is has become who he is. But at the time, in that campaign, Al Gore was someone whose reputation had been sullied by association with a number of Clinton scandals, some fake and generated and some certainly real, including the one that led to Clinton's impeachment. And he went and picked Joe Lieberman, who was the Democrat who had been most vocally critical of Bill Clinton, was seen by many as the moral voice in the Senate. And it was a pick that was designed to communicate to voters that Al Gore was breaking with some of the aspects of the Clinton presidency that they did not like. Are there any narratives you can think of that Biden would be trying to establish here?
2: If there was one issue a 77-year-old white man might have, it might be with women. And so he's already sort of approached and tried to tackle that problem by saying, ladies, I hear you and I see you, but there's a lot more. And so I think that while Biden himself, look, like everyone understands this election is about an existential threat to like the country and, and the world, but Biden still has to motivate people to get out and vote because that's important. And so I think that while Biden knows that he himself does not come across as any sort of change agent and he is not the future facing face of the party, I do think that if there's one thing that he's thinking about is like, who do I pick that can understand and speak to the change that needs to happen in this country and who is someone that can help lead the party forward?
1: There's a couple of directions that Biden can go here, right? Any good campaign narrative is an implicit counter-narrative for the person you're taking on. So like, you can see a world where Biden decides that he's going to double down on government competence, right? We've had this Yahoo reality TV star who can't even be bothered to do the job in there for the last four years. And look where that's gotten us, an economic depression and a pandemic that has made America the embarrassment of the world. So you're going to pick someone with tremendous amount of government experience. You could go with sort of what you said, which is bridge to the future, where he's going to say that, I recognize that I am older, I am a transitional figure, and I want my vice president to be the future, right? And, you know, a whole bunch of people on that list would fit that criteria. You could say, I want to double down on Obama nostalgia, right, where it's like you're going to, you know, it sort of make America great again circa 2008 to 2016 and, you know, do something there. So there's a whole bunch of different ways he can do it if he wants to focus on that. Now, the last part, I think, of the political calculus, and I think probably the least consequential, although you should certainly feel free, as you often do, to disagree with me on this, but a good vice presidential candidate needs to be able to win a debate. One of the most notably bad VP debate performances came from John Edwards in 2004 when he was up against Dick Cheney. Alyssa, some people have said, I'm, I have been overly mean to you about the selection of John Edwards by John Kerry, who you worked for. I would like to just state for everyone who's tweeting us that I am, A, not holding Alyssa responsible for it. B, thought it was probably a the wise decision in the time. John Edwards did not reveal himself to be an absolutely horrible human being until after that. Um, and I'm just teasing you. So. I
2: wanted Tom Th- Vilsack. I've said it before. <laughs> I liked him very much. He was my favorite person. Also, people don't need to stick up for me when it comes to you. I obviously hold my own.
1: <laughs> there's no There was no doubt about that. No. Um, you know, what, what happened at that debate? Or what do you remember about the Cheney Edwards
2: debate? So... I remember everybody thinking that John Edwards with his like beautiful sideswept hair was going to knock it out of the park. And he just did like some really ham handed sort of hackneyed things when he got to the debate. It's like, this is always my thing that when you look and there's, we'll talk about this later, but when someone lands a punch and it seems like they just came up with it, that they can pivot and think on their feet, you're like, damn, that was great. But the thing I remember was that he got on stage and tried to talk to Dick Cheney about gay marriage. Dick Cheney has a gay daughter. He was against gay marriage. John Edwards really thought he was going to hit one home with this. One, Dick Cheney was like, get off my stoop, you fly. Like, I'm not even going to talk to you. And John Edwards was also against gay marriage. I just, it's like... How was that the move in the debate? It just, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. He was supposed to come off as like this young, virile, you know, I always think of like Matthew McConaughey in A Time to Kill, that that's what he was supposed to be. And he was not. He was not Jake Brigands. He was, he was no one.
1: You're exactly right. There, There was obviously an expectations problem. John Edwards was a very successful trial lawyer and was sort of famous for his closing arguments in court before he entered politics. And Dick Cheney was n- never a politician of great talent. He had mostly worked his way up through government, although he did serve in Congress for years. He was Secretary of Defense. He was Gerald Ford's Chief of Staff. And he was sort of known for being the master of the inside game, which is something we have not talked about in this pod and uh, we probably should have, was that Dick Cheney ran George W. Bush's vice presidential selection process. And picked And himself. then ended the process by picking himself, which is, so maybe he he's a master inside politician, but not someone who's particularly charismatic in front of the camera, but he was quite well prepared and he landed a relatively brutal hit on John Edwards's inexperience and turned oh, yeah. Edwards into a version of Dan Quayle there. Let's take a listen.
3: You've got one of the worst attendance records in the United States Senate. Now, in my capacity as vice president, I am the president of the Senate the presiding officer. I'm up in the Senate uh, most Tuesdays when they're in session. The first time I ever met you was when you walked on the stage tonight.
1: Speaking of Dan Quayle, he was also involved in one of the most notorious uh, vice presidential debate moments when he was absolutely owned by Senator Lloyd Benson after Quayle was asked about his experience. Let's take a listen.
3: It is not just age, it's accomplishments, it's experience. I have far more experience than many others that sought the office of vice president of this country. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Senator Benson? Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator,
1: you're no Jack Kennedy. Just absolutely brutal.
2: So here's the thing about that. Again, I remembered that. I've used it as a, as a YouTube link on Twitter many times in responding to people. But the thing that made that whole exchange so great is that until last night, I thought that that was Lloyd Benson being spontaneous, came up with it on the fly and just like owned him. And it wasn't. His advisors, including Bob Shrum, who my beloved cat was named after, were trying to get him to say this in debate prep for weeks because he was not seen. Benson was not seen as a great debater. He was not t- terribly telegenic in his own view. I'm not judging him. Um, and they were like, this is the winner. And so the thing is he landed it on the one hand. I was a little bummed to know that he didn't come up with it on the fly, but also stoked because he landed it like a champ.
0: Pod Save America is brought to you by the homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our Capitol. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
1: Do you think the vice presidential debate matters at all? I mean, we've just given some examples. Like, I don't think you think that Kerry lost in part because John Embers did a terrible job against Cheney and, you know, Benson delivered that hammer blow, but then the Dukakis-Benson ticket got clobbered. But do you think, it? like, do you, how impactful do you think it is if it's impactful at all?
2: I think if your candidate is strong, if your presidential candidate is strong, the VP debate isn't that impactful. I think if they're not doing great, that how your VP does, does maybe sway people more? I mean, like, I think that if Mike Pence, and I mean, he did pretty badly. I was going to make the argument for having picked Pence and that's why they won, but, like, it's not. People were just really not smart this time around. So, no, I don't think that. I think that it's, it's interesting for us to watch. I think that if George Bush had not been as strong and credentialed as he was, Dan quail becoming the wide eyed emoji like deer in headlights would have mattered more. But like ultimately, like his wife, Bab said when talking about how really terrified she was of Geraldine Ferraro, because Ferraro was so great on the campaign trail, but that ultimately people do not vote for the vice president. So I think that if Bush had been weaker, had not been as popular, the quail performance might have mattered more. But I think it's interesting for people to watch. I don't know that it moves the needle that much. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there, it's, it does not matter as much, po- the debate itself. And I think the vice presidential selection overall does not matter as much politically as people who talk about and write about politics for a living tend to suggest. But it can matter in the margins. And I think right. it's less about how it influences people's choice, and it is about momentum. Because the sequence of debates – has been, at least in recent years, first debate between the presidential candidates, vice presidential debate, second presidential debate, third presidential debate. And in both the Kerry race and the Obama re-election race, that vice presidential debate mattered some because Kerry had performed very well in the first debate against Bush and was seen as having won. So if Edwards had performed well, it would have continued their momentum for at least another week or so. But because Edwards got clobbered, it allowed Bush to resuscitate some momentum. 2012, Obama did not perform well in the first debate against Romney. He lost that debate.
2: Hashtag Denver, and never our campaign forget. was –
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and our campaign was reeling, and that was the first time Romney had had momentum in months and was rising in the polls, was raising more money, Republicans were getting more enthusiastic. And then that Biden-Ryan debate happened, and if Biden had done poorly in that debate – it would have given Romney more momentum heading into the next debate and maybe a better chance at upsetting Obama. You know, it's hard to know exactly how that would work, but it does, like it happens at a relatively important juncture and the performance does matter. So I think it at least will be something that the Biden campaign considers. Now we take all of this and we've been through the readiness question, we've been through the governing partnership question, we've been through the politics. And I'm gonna talk to Perry Bacon about what the data says, but Alyssa, what does your gut say about how much this decision will actually matter in whether Joe Biden becomes president or not. Not what kind of president he'll be, but whether he actually wins the election.
2: Huh. Here's what I'm going to say. And I say this knocking all the wood in my house. I say it as the person who bought a raincoat before our outdoor election night event in Chicago, because I thought by buying a raincoat, I would not jinx us for having this outdoor event. I think that Biden's selection isn't about him winning, it's about by how much he wins. That's what I think.
1: I mean, that amount of messing with I told you, I knocked
2: on everything. I just knocked on my head, okay? I just, but like, did you want me to lie? That's what I think.
1: Don't lie to yourself, but make sure you keep karma in the loop about the plans. Karma and I are Um, friends. The most important parts are about what kind of vice president this person would be. And the politics are actually directly related to that, because if you screw up the first two questions- it impacts the third question, mm-hmm. politics. But it does matter on the margins. And in, a cl- in close races are won on the margins. And there is lots of reason to believe, despite what the polls say today, that this could end up being a very close race. And so I want to make sure we don't undermine the entire purpose of the three episodes we just did by saying it doesn't matter, because it, it does matter. It matters a lot.
2: Yeah, of course it matters.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This was inconsequential. <laughs> Once a decision has been made, the final step in the process is – telling the world what the decision is. You helped plan both Barack Obama and John Kerry's announcement of their vice presidential picks. What's your recollection of how they did it and whether you thought they were successful?
2: Um, So John Kerry picks John Edwards. He makes the decision over 4th of July weekend, specifically because he thinks the press isn't going to be paying attention. Again, not a lot of social media back in 2004. So people actually did sort of like quiet it down uh, during the holidays. So, it's John Edwards. John Kerry makes the announcement on the 6th of July. The event with the Edwards is going to be on the 7th. But we had on the 6th, you know, again, like we've talked about, so much of this revolves around private planes and trying to get people around where they need to be. So we had to have a private plane on standby. Couldn't tell the charter company where the plane would be going, which, by the way, is a very nice charter company, because that's a very difficult thing to do. They had to sign NDAs once we were going to tell them what uh, what city they were going to be going to to pick up the person and take them wherever they were going. Um, this was the same in 2008. So John Kerry makes his announcement uh, on the 6th. The press all head over to Georgetown, where John Edwards and his very telegenic family are leaving to go to Pittsburgh, where John Kerry and his family are. It was really scripted. Edwards was not to talk to the press. No one in the family was to talk to the press. They were just supposed to like look great and wave and get in the car and go. So then the next day was like the big, like you made fun of me last time when I said like the big Time Magazine cover kind of day where everyone's wearing neutral tones and they they look really good and like a beautiful ticket and family that's going to lead the country. We did our big rally with Edwards and then that was that. And like I said, around that announcement, so much of what we were doing was meant to be secret and be a surprise. Um the people who printed the placards that we have also discussed Revealed three different potential choices: the Kerry Gephardt, Kerry Vilsack, Kerry Graham, and Kerry Edwards. Even the people who printed those four versions of placards had to sign NDAs because we didn't want them to tell anybody who the final four might be, even though the New York Times more than had that covered. And then with Barack Obama, We meant a much more sort of trimmed down version because, as you know, Barack Obama does not like anything that is over the top. And the truth is, the more over the top, the harder it is to execute well. I know that we told people by text because I read about it, but I don't remember it. And I don't think I'd signed up for the text. So I didn't get it.
1: (laughs) You sent your first text in 2013, if I remember correctly. Right after you
2: set up my Twitter account. Um,
1: That's right. (laughs)
2: Look at me. So prolific. Um, And then Barack Obama, we all agreed. Obviously, all of us had conversations that without it even knowing if it was going to be Joe Biden, I think that we all agreed that the symbolism of bringing it full circle to Springfield, you know, where we had launched the campaign, made good sense. And again, chartered plane didn't pick them up in Wilmington, picked them up at some small airport outside of Philadelphia and Pfeiffer. I think there were a lot of Bidens that came with us that day. I think we had a plane full of Bidens, which was a little complicating when you're trying to be like small footprint. But at that point, like, you know, people already knew that it was them because we had texted the world about it. And again, like our event, if you look back, it was ours was much more pared down, much more simple, but still the enthusiasm and excitement that it was meant to garner. It did and probably some good fundraising, as I recall.
1: So the, the text thing is interesting. So every campaign in recent years has tried to leverage the pending announcement to get people to sign up for whatever their communications method of choice is. So Kerry told everyone he was going to announce it by email to get people to sign up for his email list.
2: Oh, I forgot that. By
1: 2008, we wanted people to sign up for text because we wanted to... Develop texting relationships with as many people as possible. But also, you want to get their cell phone number so you can add it to your database, and so you can reach out to them about volunteering, about you know registering to vote, turning out to vote, all of the above. And so we said we were going to do it by text. We were going to send the text first thing Saturday morning, and the event with Biden would be Saturday. But what happened was CNN, late late into the night on Friday night, reported that it was Biden. Now, they had sort of reported it based, no one in Biden world, I believe, had told CNN this, but I think the two other people on the list had been told that they were not going to be it. So sort of by process of elimination, you know, and their, their desire to keep that secret goes down greatly when, they're not, when they know they're not going to be the VP. <laughs> and so CNN reported it. And we had this, it was a huge debate that was happening among the digital team myself and Pluff about what we do. Like, when do you send the text? Like, the thing we cared so much about is we said we were going to be the ones to tell our supporters first, right? We were going to tell them before we told reporters. And so under orders of potential firing, basically, Pluff said to all of us on the communications team, you cannot confirm this to any reporter until the text goes out. And so I did not go to bed that entire night. We eventually made the decision to send the text at, 3 a.m. I think, 3 a.m., yeah. because it had become untenable. Now, Romney tried a similar tactic that he was going to announce it through his campaign app, which seemed clever on its face, but really made almost no sense. And then Donald Trump, in a very on-brand way, did something that had no organizational value, which is he just tweeted his answer out. So having Twitter followers, does that help you win an election? Um, certainly, does it help you get volunteers and voters? That whole conversation, perhaps too long and too boring about an email chain I was on about texts 12 years ago, speaks to like what campaigns are trying to get out of this, right? The first and most important thing is they want to grab the nation's attention and hold it for as long as possible, which is why you preview the announcement, you do the announcement, then you kick it off with some sort of bus tour, or boat tour, or some sort of planes, trains, or automobiles tour across America with the two of them, right? Because that'll get coverage, The other thing is you want to leverage it for organization, which is why you do things like get people to sign up for texts and emails. But Alyssa, I have to ask you, as the person I describe as the foremost living expert on the vice presidential selection process, you have planned two of these announcements. What advice would you give to the Biden team about how they were to make this announcement when this decision has been made?
2: So I obviously have thoughts. Um, I leave the social media stuff to you, like how you would maybe – like tee it up, um, and actually communicate the choice. So if I were to do the event for Joe Biden and I were going to tell him what to do, one, we are in July, August, 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th amendment, giving women the right to vote. He is picking a woman. This is some low hanging fruit. (laughs) I would include it in my announcement in some way. Um, at least if it only means waiting until August 1st to say, this month is so important and I'm acknowledging it and this woman is going to be the first woman to be vice president. I think that would be important. The thing that you want to communicate, which will be hard and will take some finessing, is like momentum and excitement and enthusiasm. And I think that that will be very hard if they can't have a crowd, which they more than likely cannot have a crowd when they do the announcement, do some like big energetic speech. So if I were the Biden campaign and if they want to hear more, they can just tweet at me, I would go for something really beautiful and symbolic and something that's just going to like take people's breath away. I don't know. This might sound trite, but honestly, it's when I was thinking about it, this was the first thing that came to mind. If you have Joe Biden either in downtown Manhattan or New Jersey, and you have the Statue of Liberty in the background and they do like a very serious speech about the future of America and why this is such an important pick, such an important election. I think it could be really powerful and beautiful and symbolic. The Statue of Liberty is a statue. And so Donald Trump obviously will have feelings about that. But I think that that's what I would do. I think that if I'm Biden, you're all the things in your announcement that Trump is not. You are dignified. You are a statesman. You are doing an event that is about you, but more about the country and sort of like a path forward. I think that's probably what I would do.
1: I mean, per usual, that's super interesting and super smart. It is both totally and logistically impossible to have the sort of traditional enthusiasm images that are around these picks, right? Like huge crowds for Obama and Biden, right. huge crowds for Kerry and Edwards and Pittsburgh. Like that's traditionally what you do. And then you get off on a bus tour and you go places like that's not available to you. So you know, I think you're right to swerve in the exact opposite direction, which is be serious, right? But I think like, you know, maybe this is a situation where you either you find the sort of beautiful backdrop that you talk about without a crowd, you know, or even a, a COVID version of a crowd, or you do it In front of flags, right? Like that, like Biden, I think that Biden has done a lot of things with that traditional flag backdrop, which is supposed to signify to the viewer and to the press, like this is a serious speech, right? Right. On a campaign, you put the flags up and you're doing a serious speech. And these are serious times. So, so doing it that way is good. The other two thoughts I had is one, you would probably do a gazillion joint media interviews right off the bat because the only way you're going to be to to reach people is by being seen everywhere and often. And oftentimes like the sequence of this is you wait a week and do a joint 60 minutes interview is sort of it. But now like Mm -hmm. you just got to jump in and do all of it because you can't tour the country like you normally would in a lot of local press. And the other thing is because of the sort of email, Twitter, campaign app, tech sort of tempo we've been on with campaigns, there's going to be a lot of really terrible digital ideas, like they should announce it on TikTok. Oh, or they no, do this, no, Do it no. over IG Live. And I think that is totally off, right? If there is a clever way, like certainly have people sign up for text because you want to continue to build that database and other things like that. But I don't think there is some super snazzy thing to do. Like these are serious times as a serious election. And, well, and, and
2: also, serious. I just think it's like not a medium that Biden would be comfortable in right? Like, that's why, whether it's the flags or my Statue of Liberty idea, I have some others I'll share with you later, that, like, you need something where he feels, like, completely great in his skin. And, like, but it's, like, there is the fear that, you know, there's going to be some wacky digital ideas that, I mean, we should just put in the, in the trunk until after the good announcement's over.
1: I mean, we're all craving the normalcy of Campaigns and those aren't coming, and we should give that up because it doesn't fit with what we're doing right now. Okay, when we come back, I'm going to talk to 538's Perry Bacon. Perry, thanks for coming on. That's the ticket.
4: Uh, Thanks for having me, Dan.
1: I wanted to have you on. We've known each other for a long time, Uh, but you wrote a great piece titled The Debate Over Biden's VP Pick is Full of Half-Truths and Misleading Arguments, which I guess we could say that is true of most debates in politics now. But in that article, you divide uh, sort of the the three main schools of thought, right? And I want to sort of go through those with you and talk about the data underlying them and what is really at stake here. So, Let's do these one at a time. So I want to one of the schools of thought you talk about is something called basically the Warren school of thought, right? People who want Elizabeth Warren. How do they make their argument and what data is there to back it up?
4: So the piece was kind of trying to argue that everybody's making an electoral claim about why their preferred candidate is best, but in reality, the electoral claim was often more contested versus the, um, versus there's a clear sort of ideological other claim. So the Warren claim, and it was in other words that basically she is the most popular candidate with Democrats overall, and that she is particularly the most candidate with younger people, and that she is more popular than Kamala Harris with younger black people. and I think there is some evidence for those things. If you poll Democrats generally and ask them who is the most popular VP candidate, um, you gen- Warren is generally ahead of that. I mean, and, and it's not fair to Keisha Bottoms, so like because Keisha Bottoms didn't run for president, so her name <laughs> ID is obviously much lower. But it is, that does suggest Warren and Kamala did run for president, and Warren tends to be a little more popular than her. And when you break that down in terms of black voters, like because we're having this sort of proxy debate on whether you need a black VP or not, and the number tend to show that Warren and Kamala are basically even among black voters and you ask them who do you want to see as the the, the VP and when you break down there's a few polls that have showed younger black voters and for those polls often are younger people of color and it tends to be that Warren is more popular than Harris among that group and that's a relevant group because all the data we've seen that has really broken down black voters suggests that Biden is really strong with the over 45 and sort of weak with younger Black voters, really those under 30. So, if the if the if the biggest electoral weakness for Biden potentially is younger people and maybe younger people of color, the case might be for Warren more than any more than Harris, particularly. Abrams tends to do well in these younger people of color polls too. Um, I don't want to make too much of these surveys because again, Susan Rice, Keisha Bottoms, and Val Demings did not run for president and do not have high name ID in that way. So I think it's a little unfair to them. But in terms of the Warren Kamala debate, I think it I think the broader point here might be that we should not assume that black voters necessarily favor or deeply inclined toward a black VP any more than other Democrats are.
1: So that gets me to the second your second group, which is the case for a black woman on the candidate, as we've talked about on. Uh, previous episodes of That's the Ticket. Biden has pledged to pick a woman. And the question is, is it going to be a woman of color, specifically a black woman? And you wrote in the piece that there's some evidence that black turnout goes up when there's a black candidate on the ticket. But some of that data is contested. Can you explain what you mean there and what the data shows?
4: So a lot of political scientists have looked at like city council state legislator mayor and house because there's just not a lot of black people that have run for senator or governor or president obviously so in those races in general like like mayor city council house the races where we had lots of black candidates in general black turnout goes up slightly if there's a black candidate running compared to a white candidate there is some there there are some scholars who say that evidence has been overstated a little bit and they say Say that, 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 that's a little bit more, that's not as confident as we think it is, and it is a little bit more, and it may relate more to the first round of black candidates who ran for things in the 70s and 80s, and may be less clear now that we've had more, more rounds of black candidates. In, in other words, like the first time people got to vote for a black person, they were very excited by that, and that may, and that may explain some of those studies. But those studies are of a black candidate running for office, um, and, and the black candidate themselves. Other thing worth noting, of course, is that we had a black Presidential candidate run in 2008, 2012, and black turnout for in the U.S. was about 65% in 08 and 2012. It was around 60% in 2004 and 2016. So, at the presidential level, a black candidate who's you know this one man at least was inspiring to black voters in a unique way. the The challenge here is that. Is that we don't we don't necessarily have much evidence for what does a black running mate do for a white candidate because we really had never had that studied any real way before. The other challenge is that we have five people and it's not clear that we can even if you say we you want to have a black woman to increase black turnout. We have five different black women we're talking about here: Val Demings, Kamala Harris, Keisha Bottoms, Stacey Abrams. Susan Rice. I like Susan Rice. I respect Susan Rice. I'm not sure Susan Rice would show up here and tell you she's going to increase black turnout. She's never run for office before. I'm not sure she would be confident to say that. Versus Stacey Abrams has run for governor in a state full of black people. And Kamala's from California. Uh, Abraham, Keisha Bottoms never run statewide. So even if you said there's some kind of black female or black turnout effect, I think it'd be hard to argue it's the same for all five women in a similar way. I mean,
1: ultimately one of the the challenges here is I mean, certainly on the national level, is it's a sample size of one, right? And a sample size of zero when it comes to the running mate. This might be an unfair question because it wasn't fully addressed in your piece, but is there any sense of how running mates have affected turnout in the past, whether it's among certain groups? You know, obviously we have two examples of women being on the national ticket.
4: So for women, it did not, you know, there was not a effect in terms of turnout or in terms of vote percentage with Geraldine Ferraro or with Sarah Palin. Now, you, those are not great examples either, though, because those are sort of Hail Mary picks where the person was sort of losing and trying to get some kind of big buzz. Um, there is some evidence that Palin helps slightly with evangelicals in 08, sort of boosting McCain with evangelicals. So it's not so the other evidence we have on vice presidents is and this is a little contested as well but the general evidence is that you get two to three points in your home state by picking a person for vice president. meaning amy klobuchar might get biden two more points in minnesota so in general vp effects are very contested but there is some small evidence but again i don't think there's a strong evidence we can say much about black or latino vps for those groups because we've had no black or latino vp nominees.
1: Then the third group you talk about is the not Warren group, right, which essentially argues that Elizabeth Warren would be, be either because she's too progressive or too polarizing, or whatever the case these people are making, saying that she would be a net negative on the ticket because of some set of voters that Biden might be targeting. Can you explain that?
4: So, this part of the piece was a little bit less electoral, but I basically made the case, and, you know, I respect Amy Klobuchar, I was maybe a little mean to her, but I made the case that when she went on that night and said, we must pick a woman of color because, you know, because of what's happening in the world, we need to heal the country right now. I think there are a fair amount of, like, more centrist Democrats who are sort of uncomfortable with Warren because they disagree with her own policy. And so they prefer a more moderate person. Kamala's more moderate. Susan Rice is more moderate in their view. And I guess what I was hinting at is that maybe that they are sort of using the woman of color case to sort of knock down somebody they disagree with. In terms of, like, would Warren hurt the ticket, we've seen a lot of polls that have sort of compared Biden-Warren, Biden, harris Biden Klobuchar. And those polls have all showed pretty similar results. And most of the ones I've seen have showed Warren Biden doing the best, but I think that might be, again, because Warren has higher name ID. But there's just very little evidence in the data right now that Warren would kind of drag down the ticket. I know it seems conceptually obvious that Warren is more left, so you might lose kind of more centrist people who like Biden when be turn off by her. We just don't see that in the numbers yet. And I think that might be because people sort of know the vice president is not driving policy. And so they might be fine with someone for vice president who they might have been nervous about for president.
1: I mean, just this may seem to have someone like you who is steeped in the data, but can you explain the relationship between name ID and how one of these candidates might be doing in these hypothetical vice presidential polls?
4: Yes. In general, in polls, like, you know, if you listen to Pots of America, particularly if you read 538, you probably know who Keisha Bottoms is. You might know who Val Demings is. You definitely know Elizabeth Warren is. But a lot of voter, a lot of people when we poll, even Democrats, do not know who these people are. So automatically, if you ask Democrats for who should be the VP and you include Keisha Bottoms and Val Demings, and you include Warren and Harris, it's a little bit unfair because most of the polls show Warren and Harris ran for president, and Warren was very famous before that. So they have about 90% of Democrats in most of these polls know who Warren and Harris are. When we were talking about Keisha Bottoms, you're talking about, I think one of the surveys I saw showed like, 30% of Democrats had heard of her. And that that may be changing as she gets more coverage. But when you have that amount of disparity in terms of name ID, of course, Warren is going to be the favorite, even among black Democrats, most black people who do not know who Keisha Bottoms is. So in that sense, so these polls are showing of the people who have heard of Keisha Bottoms, she's doing pretty well. But if you're asking people at random on a phone call, do you support Warren for VP or this person you've never heard of, they will say Warren.
1: This sort of gets to the larger point of your piece, which is that the data is quite hypothetical at best, right? Anyone can find any piece of data to make their argument. Anyone who is picked as the vice presidential nominee, whether it is Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, or Keisha Layans Bottoms, or Val Demings, or Susan Rice, that person is going to have 100% name ID seven days after they are picked, and it will dramatically change how it is viewed, right? Right. But the other element of this is we've only had a pretty small number of presidential elections over a long period of time in American history, and politics has changed pretty fast. So this is quite theoretical at best. Would you say that?
4: Yes. So the piece was trying to say... And look, 538's a part of this more than anybody else probably. The piece was trying to say everybody is arguing about the VP process through sort of electoralism with these sort of claims about our guy's going to be better for this kind of voter, our guy's going to do this. And I was sort of saying we don't really know. We have a tiny amount of evidence for these VP claims. Why don't we calm them down slightly? And my argument was a lot of the black people were saying black, like Jim Clyburn is saying we need a black person and he's hinting at black turnout. But I think Jim Clyburn really wants to see a black woman on the ticket. He thinks, and a lot of black women think, forget about electoral politics. We do everything possible for this party every four years, every two years. Why don't you guys give us something? And, you know, Kamala Harris, particularly Kamala Harris is very, extremely qualified. We have a black female senator who ran for president and ran a credible campaign. If the Democratic Party wants to show it values black women, here's someone, here's a way you can do that. So that's the case they're really making. When you get to the the centrist, what they're really saying is, look, this is a country that is centrist. We want to have a centrist person kind of on deck for president after Joe Biden. We don't want Elizabeth Warren as our person next. And then the left part of the party is saying, look, you guys pick Biden. We, 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 we've we eaten Biden already. Can you at least give us something for VP that'll get us excited? That's what's really going on. We're having sort of a shadow boxing. And Dan, you would say this. Every debate in Washington, the whole time we were there, people were mad masking their own views through electoralism. So this is nothing new, right. and it's sort of annoying at times. But I was just trying to make sure for people who are not plugged into this, here's like what's really going on, is what we always to do to 530, and that's what I was trying to get at.
1: And one of the things that's hard, like, there is an incredibly strong case for representation, right? Not just for payback for previous support, but because it is a very important way in which we can move the country forward, right? And, you know, we, Alyssa and I had a long conversation about Geraldine Ferraro's vice presidential candidacy and what that meant for whole generation of women. You can imagine how a black woman being on the national ticket would obviously change perceptions very quickly for a a large number of people about what was possible in this country. You know, like, obviously, we can't know what will happen with turnout, right? But then there's this other question that I think has been changed by what's happened in America in the last few months, which is what if Biden doesn't pick a black woman, right? Like, what does that conversation look like? And do you think... Everything that has happened over the last few months with our sort of national reckoning with uh, structural racism changes the backdrop for that decision for
4: Biden. This is the hardest question I've been thinking about because if you look at the polls even post George Floyd protests black people are not demanding a black VP. What they tend to, you know, if you look at the polls, you, do you care about having a black uh, a black, you know, a person of color or a black running mate? Black voters are sort of like 30% say very important, the rest say somewhat important. It's not like black people are opposed to it, but it's not as right. if they're sort of driving. So it's a weird norm to say we have to have a black VP. Because the question is – because the question almost assumes the black VP is for black people, right? And maybe I'm wrong, but I think it sort of assumes that, and I don't think that's exactly right. And if you go – and if you went to one of these protests – the, let's. I, I'm not, and I respect Kamala but if you go to these protests you're not hearing people say let's send the prosecutor to the White House that's not exactly the message they're giving so even if you say black you know even if you, we really have to sort of to me we have to zone in on even if we say it might be a moment for a black woman we have to pick one of these people still and I don't know and I think the moment is going to be complicated for Val Demings or Kamala because of the what the protesters are really protesting in some ways is how Law enforcement treats black people, and they have some concerns. Some of them have real concerns about what Kamala has done in particular, and they probably would not be excited about Val Dimmings, who was a sheriff as well. So I think that complication is there. At the same time, it is the Democratic Party. The party where, like when Biden promised there would be a woman, that was a nod to the Democratic Party as a party that is majority female. In the same way, the Democratic Party is about 40% non-white. And so even before George Floyd, I would argue, it was gonna be awkward for the party that literally talks about its diversity all the time to have two white people. And I do think, and it might be one of the things where I would actually say that a lot of white Democrats I talk to really don't wanna see an all-white ticket. It may be that, I think in some ways, I try to think more about diversity in this way, which we, if you see these polls, we now have the Democratic Party's not just black people demanding diversity and white people, or minorities demanding diversity and white people standing there. You increasingly have I think a lot of white Democrats to be uncomfortable with a as uncomfortable as black Democrats to be more uncomfortable with an all white ticket than black people are
1: yeah, I think I remember seeing polling in the primary that showed white liberals the most uncomfortable with a mostly white democratic field at the end. And then black voters overwhelmingly supporting Joe Biden, who is most
4: definitely white. And so, like it is definitely more complex than that. I do think one more thing on this just briefly, is that black voters are somewhat nervous about electability and they're focused on that. and if you if I went down to South Carolina, my guess is I would find that black voters are nervous that Kamala, or a black woman on the ticket will help Trump. Black voters have a deep cynicism about their fellow Americans' racial views and are nervous that their fellow Americans may not be excited about having a black woman on the ticket. Like, they, that is part of what's going on here, is black voters see Warren as white and the other people as not. And they think that, and I've heard this discussed, that Warren is safer. And I don't agree with this. And I think the I don't think the data supports that. And you guys won twice. I think I think that, you know, Fellow black people are overly pessimistic about the racism in the country, but I'm not going to convince them of that. And I sort of and I think that is underlining this is like a black person is a risk. Look how they treated Brock.
1: Perry Bacon, thank you so much for joining us on That's a Ticket. Uh, I hope everyone reads your article. Um, it was super fascinating and real helps us explain what we know and what we do not know about what this decision means politically.
4: And then, just to finish, I should say—I wanted to say this at the start—but you know, I covered politics all this time. I covered politics twenty years. Um, I met a lot of people who are very smart. I met a lot of people who—I met also people who weren't that smart, um, who just were famous because they, you know, their daughter went to Yale Law School. What have you? I would say this, like I've been excited about Dan doing this because um, I, I covered the Obama campaign I covered the Obama White House. Dan did not always love my coverage and Dan at times was quite honest about that but usually <laughs> he was right and often he, and whenever we talked I learned a lot about politics from Dan because Dan is one of the smartest people I know I'm not saying this, i on the podcast, Dan is one of the sharpest people I know about politics so I'm excited to be on, I'm excited he's doing this and I think people have learned a lot from his thoughts these last four years, so thanks for having me Dan, I appreciate
1: it. Well, Perry, that was very, very nice of you. And I apologize for how direct my honesty was at times, even if, even when it was sometimes both the product of not being caffeinated enough in the morning when I sent the email and being overly crabby. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Alyssa, I'm going to give you a choice. Okay. You ready for this? Yeah. You can do one of two things here. For our listeners on this, the series finale of That's the Ticket, you can either give us your guess for who you think Joe Biden will pick, not who you think he should pick, but who you think he will pick, or you can right here and now reveal the name of the flatulent contender to be John Kerry's vice president.
2: Buddy, you know that I could never do that because that would be uncool. And the whole reason that anyone's ever given me any good shit to do in my life is because I'm discreet. Not anymore, but I was back then. So I have to maintain my oath to John Kerry of being discreet. So I will tell you that I think Joe Biden is going to pick Susan Rice.
1: Whoa, what a pick. All right, we'll see if you're right. Thanks for listening. What do you mean what about
2: you? Don't you <laughs> hang me out to dry you motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all fun and games. Let's just have Alyssa walk the plank.
1: Yeah, that was the plan. No,
2: it's not the plan. That was people the plan. I th- I people want to know plan. what you think.
1: I have to be honest. I feel very hesitant to do this for two reasons. One, I gave up predictions, like very explicitly. Like it's actually the entire theme of Pod Save America is that we're out of the prediction game. Um, So I have some discomfort with that. But since I walked you down this plank, I feel like I should also jump in the deep end. If I had to guess based on no insider knowledge with no opinion on whether this is the right pick or the wrong pick and the context that I think that there is no one on the list, on Joe Biden's list as we understand it, that would be a bad selection. Correct. If I had to guess what Joe Biden would do, I would guess that he would pick Kamala Harris.
2: Hmm. Well, we'll see if one of us is right. Also, all the caveats you said applied to what I said, but I just didn't use that much air to, def- to, to buffer myself <laughs> <laughs> around a potential karmatic bad pick.
1: Per usual, uh, you accomplish a lot more than me
2: in less time. L O L O L.
1: All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to That's the Ticket. It has been a blast talking to you all about the vice presidential selection process. And Alyssa, we can't wait to talk to you again on Pod Save America after this choice is... I cannot
2: wait. Hopefully it is soon.
1: Bye, everyone.
0: Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitriou, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week.